1: Basic Folk, a podcast where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I am Lizzie No. I'm your host today, and I am so privileged to be hosting a roundtable discussion with three other artists that I just have infinite admiration for: Jake Blount, Kaya Cater, and Allison Russell. Thank you all so much for being here today. It's
2: a joy to be here with you all.
1: I wanted to start by setting the table a little bit for why we're here why we're doing this special episode of Basic Folk, and also to let our listeners know what we're not here to do. Um, so a few weeks ago, a really hateful article was published in Pace Magazine, kind of lumping a lot of really diverse Black artists together, leveling some unfair critiques at a lot of us uh, as a group. And I want to encourage our listeners to not click on the article, because not only is it hurtful? Um, there are so many holes in its logic that it's hard to read. I will encourage people to read Jake's really thoughtful, accurate, funny, succinct rebuttal. Basically, what that artic- what those two articles did was spark a conversation about the state of Black musicians in Roots Music today. And that's what I want to talk about. I don't want to talk about the haterism. I want to talk about, like, what's on our minds. Um So I want to start with a quote from Toni Morrison. The function, the very serious function of racism is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being. Somebody says you have no language and you spend 20 years proving that you do. Somebody says your head isn't shaped properly, so you have scientists working on the fact that it is. Somebody says you have no art, so you dredge that up. Somebody says you have no kingdoms, so you dredge that up. None of this is necessary. There will always be one more thing. So let's just set aside the possibility of like having to assert that black artists belong in Roots Music because we all know that we belong. Our work speaks for itself. Our many contributions speak for themselves. Let's talk about like the state of the union of black artists right now folk and roots music have always had black art at its center, but it can also be a tricky place for black artists to thrive. My theory is that like, while the community can tend to be more politically liberal than like mainstream country, we also have a focus on tradition and the past, which can make us really like, let's face it, snobby and stubborn in folk music. So I want to put this question to all of you, maybe starting with Jake, like, Why do you think that this is a really tricky moment for Black artists in Roots Music? Why do you think these conversations are getting more and more heated right now?
0: Well, I think it's just that people are starting to, to gain recognition and success in a way that maybe has been deserved for a while, but hasn't been there. I mean, the funny thing for me about reading that article was that he seemed to be so suddenly upset over these artists who have been on the scene for, like, decades. Like, Allison has been out here making really good music for a really long time, and they're all acting like she just showed up. Like, <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's a little bit confusing. And I think he clearly was reacting to the Newport lineup, which I was also a part of, and feeling like maybe too many spots were set aside or whatever it may be. I just think that it's the sudden groundswell of black artists that is freaking people out who were maybe okay with one or two. Like Tracy Chapman was fine, but just Tracy Chapman, right? Right. Like nobody else gets in. (laughs) Um, And I think they're just going to have to start dealing with it.
2: Absolutely. I love what you said, Jake, because that is something that I have been privately chuckling about is this notion of after 22 years of being a professional musician, being kind of noticed as emerging. And it it makes me laugh and it's fine. It's like, I'm a cicada, like scrabbling up through the soil for 20, 20 years. But it's, you're absolutely right, Jake. It's the fact that so many more artists are being recognized by gatekeepers who in the past did not include us. And that is, you know, that's at the heart of it is who is who is the gatekeeper? Who is the curator? And to me, that's the most problematic thing about. I don't care what you know. There, there are plenty of cisgender, heterosexual, white men of a certain age who are gonna despise what I do, and I'm fine with that. You know, <laughs> we're gonna despise what any of us. God does. bless. And God I'm bless. fine with Goodbye. that. That's fine. They can <laughs> and they can think what they want. They can write what they want. That's fine. It's freedom. Great. What, what to me was problematic is that two editors at Paste signed off on that article. You know, right. The, the title alone should have been a massive red flag, you know, so it's that's where I'm interested in pushing for change there on the gatekeeping side. I feel like all of us, all of us artists have been here. We are here. We are, as mm-hmm. as our sweet friend Brandy Carlile would say, the architects of Americana, you know. Black, the contributions of the black diaspora are at the heart of every idiom and genre of American song. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's just no, there's, no, you can't, as you say, Lizzie, there's, we don't have to, we don't have to prove it. We don't have to reprove it. It's just a fact. Um, you know, but what is important, I think right now is the other side of the curtain is really important. You know, who is, who, who is in those curatorial positions? And that is part of mm-hmm. what, you know what happened at Newport and why maybe there was that kind of reaction to it is that some of the curation was put into my hands for that festival mm-hmm. and that was unprecedented that has never happened in the history of Newport and I give I give kudos you know to Jay Sweet for recognizing oh there's you know I see what I see from my perspective maybe I need to open this up a little bit you know, And I'm very proud of him for doing that. It's not easy to have that kind of self-reflection and self-criticism, in a sense, of saying, oh, wait, maybe there's something I'm not seeing. You know, Maybe someone else needs to make some of these decisions too. And I think that that is... I, what I hope comes out of this for Paste is that they see that they've got a little bit of a... An issue. An issue in terms yeah. of who, who are their editors? Who are the people that they are giving a regular platform to you know who gets the recurring columns who gets to write about black artists in Americana right now is it really appropriate that uh, they chose to have you know a cisgender heterosexual white male of a certain age be the voice of that you know yeah I obviously, I have my
0: opinion. Yeah.
2: <laughs> hell no, that was super yeah. inappropriate, you know, but like I would add yeah. I did
0: get to talk to them about it. um when I published my response article to it, mm-hmm. they were very much like, if you have any questions for us about how this happened, please ask them. We are very embarrassed about it. They explained it. It was a bad mistake. It was a bad mistake, um and a damaging one. I think that they have realized that and my hope is that, you know, moving forward, they will act with more caution. Uh, It definitely, that was also one of my first thoughts was like, how did someone come up to them being like, hey, I, a white man, would like to publish an article on why black people aren't good at stuff. And they were like, great. That sounds like a plan. We
1: love it. Here's our our platform. (laughs) I think this is like some, so this is something that I'm always Kind of on a soapbox yelling about that there is a lot of behind the scenes work that happens in the music industry that people aren't aware of, and like why should they? You know, if you're not a you're not in this industry, um, you might not know that for every artist that you see having an album release, there are dozens and dozens of people behind the scenes who made that happen, and so even if you're seeing let's say a female artist in country or a black artist in roots. um, That's not necessarily telling the whole story, right? Because who is managing that person? Who were the people at the label that got to make the decision whether or not they got a budget? Like, let's be real. Like who's, who's getting to decide who's getting an album budget, who's programming the festivals, who are the agents that are deciding, you know, who's going to go on which lineup, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's this illusion that there is a huge explosion of black power in roots. I actually think it's just surface level at this point. And this argument that like, oh, black people are getting, you know, too much appreciation and too much leeway is based on a misunderstanding of the industry. Like, yes, there are more visible artists right now. Yes, critics are loving the art being made, particularly by black women artists right now. But like, behind the scenes, it's still the same people making the decisions. And I think that's what we're trying to push to change.
3: Yeah, I think, like, it reminds me of that saying, like, nothing about us without us. Um, And so, so many of those rooms are still, like, so white. And I think things get said in there and decisions get made in there that, like, that sort of trickle down to us as performers. You know, like, I wonder if, if any of you have been put on the the all black woman workshop you know where it's like what do you have in (laughs) common? you're all black women great you know and it's like so clear like if it if it was like a a good programming decision you could tell but i think you sort of get a sixth sense about what feels like you said lizzie like just totally performative and ill thought out you know and like of Mm -hmm. course that workshop is going to be banging because i think like we're all great and i love us but, mm-hmm. <laughs> but like so many, but so many of those rooms and, and especially as Alison was saying, like those editorial rooms, you know, they're just, they're just so white. And I think they, they want to keep it that way. Cause like, I don't think, I wonder if they really want to be challenged and if they really want that voice of dissent in the room right. saying, no, you can't write about this artist this way, this is racist or, yes. you know, this is sexist or this is, you know, homophobic or transphobic or like... I, like, I think they really don't want to hear that, um, but
1: the problem is- They is want that- to put us in a room to with each other. Yeah. You know, where we can talk amongst ourselves and not challenge the status quo.
2: I think there's such deep fetishism and tokenism that we're pushing back against, and it's going to take time because this is a, a construct- that was built for a reason, you know, and it was built to consolidate power for a tiny white minority. (laughs) That's the truth, you know. And, um, And patriarchal, obviously, mostly male. It was built to serve a tiny cadre of white men. You know, racism is a false construct in order to do that. Sexism is a false construct in order to do that. Every harmful ism. And it's going to take time and intention, and coalition. I mean, this is the word I come back to over and over and over again. Coalition. Coalition. Because the only way any of that works is through a divide-and-conquer strategy that has been unchallenged, really, since few... I mean, it, I talk about this a lot with... In my band, we've been going... We all have been reading Adrian Brown's Emergent Strategies, and it's so brilliant. And But we've been talking about that we've trapped in this feudalist system and mentality, hierarchical mentality of there's a tiny deserving percentage at the top and then the rest of us are all some level of less deserving, you know, and it's nonsense and it only works when we buy into any part of that divide and conquer competition versus community mentality, you know, and and everything is set up to try and pit us against each other, and that's, but, but it's a trick and it's a bad trick and it's tired, it is played out and we are not falling for it anymore.
1: I have a question for you, Kaya, kind of back to that topic of the all black woman panel. I think for some of our listeners, it might be confusing some of the terms that we're talking about. So I think for us intuitively, there's a difference between, for example, a conversation like this, in which amongst ourselves, for Black artists have decided to talk about a topic or that coalition building that you're talking about, Allison, um, versus an external decision maker deciding this is where all the Black women are gonna go and pushing us to the side. So my question for you, Kaya, and of course everyone is like, where do you think it's useful for us to self-identify as Black artists and put you know that Black in capital letters um, and where do you think it's, like, ghettoizing? Like, when do you think it's actually useful for us to, like, self-identify along those identity lines?
3: I think it's a constantly shifting um, negotiation, honestly. Mm-hmm. I I think the thing for me is I can recognize when it feels true and when it feels supportive and, and like, whole, when I feel whole. Um, mm-hmm. And when I... Lumin, myself and other artists um, of color and Black and Indigenous artists especially feel tokenized, you know. And I think there's a, there's a really disempowering message in tokenization, which tells you, oh, no, you're here. Like, you're here playing the festival. We're paying you. But we're also just going to, like, send you these subtle messages that, that this is all we understand about what you do. And could you be a Mm. spokesperson for this? And what do you think about that? And could you talk about this? You know, um, I have a friend, Molly Abamswin, who's like a great great bass player. Oh, yeah. Um, You know, and she's indigenous. And sometimes she's like, just book me for a gig. Like, stop trying to get me to like, like, I can talk about this. And and I, I, I do talk about land back initiatives and things like that. But like, I'm a musician and stop trying to get me to educate you. And so I think, yeah, I I really think it's a constantly shifting negotiation for so many of us. But the feeling is like we know we know when we're being tokenized. Do you know what I mean? Like there's a certain feeling. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, that's interesting because I think sometimes like when I'm having these conversations, especially now, like being in the podcast space, in the back of my mind, there's that like mostly well-meaning white person being like, but why this and not that? But why this and not not that? And I'm often like trying to respond to that and like educate. And I think what a lot of people don't realize they're doing is asking for a simple answer and a simple solution. Like, well, how can I support you without it being hard? How can I be an ally without it being complicated? Like, okay, just tell me what to do and I'll do it, right? Like that's the attitude of some of our quote unquote allies. And the tricky answer is like, you have to let us decide every single time, like you don't get to come up with your blanket solution that's going to work for you and be simple. You actually have to like hand over power and let us decide case by case, which is like not an easy answer.
2: (laughs) And nothing is I mean, nothing is monolithic. You know, it's not the same answer for each of us. What Kaya's boundaries are may be different than what my boundaries are. What Jake's boundaries exactly. are might be yeah. different than, you know what I mean? And so it's like each of us coming, and that's that's life, right? That is also life for every human on the planet, is, is kind of integrating, deciding like who you are, what feeds your spirit, what you need to thrive, and how you receive that from the communities you choose to be a part of and the families you choose to be a part of. And do you feel safe within those families? Do you feel Mm -hmm. seen and valued for who you are within those families? Or do you feel gaslit? Do you feel that they are trying to abuse you in some way? Do you feel that... I mean, and these are negotiations that we're playing out all the time in in different spheres, professionally, personally, you know, everywhere. So, I mean, life is complex. So I don't know why anyone would expect... Something as huge as talking about the construct of race in America or the world <laughs> or music to be easy because it's not you know it's just not you know that is you bring up something so important, kaya of what Molly you know how that made Molly feel when they want her to talk about land back or they want her to be a representative for all of the indigenous voices of the world, you know, and the weight of that and There may be times when she is happy to give a speech and talk about land back, and there may be times when she is not. And she, like anyone else, that's when we get down to consent, isn't it? Like, we are learning so much about consent, I think, as a species in this time, particularly the kind of complexities that dealing with the COVID pandemic has forced upon all of us. You know, every human on the planet is having to reckon with this in some way, shape, or form. And so much of it as I've been listening into the various sort of divisive camps and people battling about masks and whatnot, so much of it comes down to consent, you know, and what people's idea of freedom and when their notion of freedom means that they get to harm others and they get to impose upon others and that somehow they are not free unless they are imposing upon somebody else. And I I think that that can kind of be extrapolated in a way to talking about blackness in, and, and black eclecticism, which is really what we're talking about. And we've always been eclectic, right? And the, the, the tokenizing and the fetishizing has has given this fake stereotypical notion of what is quote unquote black music and what isn't, you know? And mm-hmm. it, it's absurd because there, we, there are no limits upon our creativity except those that we impose upon ourselves, you know? And it's, um, it just, to me, it's this, we, we want to make things, it's reductive. We want to make things simple when they're not. And we want to make them one thing when they're not, or two things. It's never binary. As far as I can tell, nothing except computer language in the entire universe and multiverse is binary. It's spectrums and degrees of complexity, degrees of nuance, you know, And everybody is so individual and beautiful. And that's what to me is exciting right now is just that there is this sense that, that I have, and I could be wrong in this feeling, but that there is a kind of a, a critical mass tipping point to where it's going to be impossible to ever try and even in the mainstream put Black artists as some kind of monolithic lump into some little box ever again. I think that we are, that time has passed and there are going to be reactionary, you know, gasping protests from various people and that's fine. They can protest. You know, I just (laughs) they are allowed. They can do whatever they want. You know, I just, that's not actually physically harming someone, I hope. Um, But... What I am excited about is diversifying these editorial spaces, these curatorial roles, you know, the vast majority is still of festival. And what Kaya, and I will go back because I think Lizzie, you're right, we're speaking in shorthand because we all know what Kaya was referring to earlier with this the, the all Black kind of workshop, many of the festivals in the in the roots world will have will have these sort of collaborative stages. And every single one that I've ever been to, actually the first time I heard a similarly offensive term, Jake, to the uh, Afro-Americana that the journalist I'm not going to amplify tried to coin um, was at the Vancouver Music Folk Festival. Kaya, Mm -hmm. you're probably familiar with that one. I don't know Lizzie and Jake if you've been to that Mm -hmm. one. But it was my first folk fest and it's where I got bit by the bug of like, oh, you can do this for a living. Like people can do this. Um, And I was put in a workshop. Called afro can Americana,
0: no, Can Americana, no, 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 no.
2: that had all the black people at the festival. Some of us were Canadian <laughs> black people, and some of us were American black people. At all the black people Allison, at the festival, no, in one workshop with that title, and we were dying. I mean, we were. It was the Carolina Chocolate oh Drops God. back in oh the day, God. like our first lineup. It was in Didi Onaquulu. It was my band, Po Girl, my baby band at the time. And the Sojourners, who are a beautiful <laughs> gospel group from Vancouver. And we were just howling about this. You know, like just like I cannot believe they used that name. I cannot <laughs> believe they lumped us all together on this stage. And as Kai said, we had an amazing time, but it was also like, come on, guys, like, come <laughs> yeah, on. <laughs> you know?
1: It's crazy to me. What's so funny is like right on cue, these they these people always show their hand. Yes. show their ass really yes by having ass. no taste like to me like the offensive like ghettoizing of black artists literally always goes with terrible aesthetics like they never have like an actually cool or hip name they never come up with like <laughs> anything interesting artistically it's always something like you can't even pronounce afro yeah. can America- like yeah
2: why yeah like and of course it's just go- and they were like taste. the gospel workshop and none of us were gospel at all except for the okay. sojourners. You so know? real. So Indeedy, do you know what Indeedee did, Kaya? She sang Winter Wonderland. <laughs> like, she's like, I don't know any gospel, but Slave Azre <laughs> Amazing. It was the most wonderful, surreal moment. And people were just dying. And she and she's so I don't know if y'all know Indeedee, but she's so charismatic mm-hmm. and she's so she's such a a kind of a I don't know she has this whole other gear of performance that I she's fascinating and the way she can Ugh. she will just bring force an audience to come with her <laughs> she just does and it's it's amazing it was it was a beautiful thing to watch you would have really appreciated it <laughs> Oh my God. that's amazing uh, but
1: yeah. uh, I want to talk about something that I can't remember who touched on it just a few minutes ago but it reminded me of something you said years ago Jake I've always been leery of being the tour guide to black culture. And I feel like that's something that that we've kind of been hinting at. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit more about your experiences with that, not only as an artist, but as someone who's like studied ethnomusicology. Like, what has that experience been like for you?
0: Well, I think for me, it's often played out a lot like it played out for Molly, um, where at least up until I like won the Steve Martin prize, nobody would hire me to do music. You know, I'd show up to whatever uh, folk camp or whatever uh, had called me and offered me money because I needed it, and then they would not want me to teach music, and I would be there to just, like, talk about slavery, which, like, clearly needed doing. So on one hand, I'm, like, glad to do it. I have the skill set, whatever, but at the same time was just – I felt like what I actually brought to the table was being overlooked, right? I'm like being placed here as like a conduit for somebody else's knowledge and like a larger history that I am only a very small part of. And I think aside from like the, I don't know, I it feels very minimizing on a personal level. But aside from that, I think to me, it just felt like I'm not really qualified to like explain all of this to you. Like, I've read a lot of books. I know a lot of the history about how this works, but like, I cannot tell you where jazz came from because I like was not there. I'm not there now. I, I, I can only ever have like second and third hand knowledge of how that worked. And I think I, I landed in a similar place to Kaya where I felt like I was being asked for, like, this very simple, like, catch-all explanation for where everything had come from and asked to unify a lot of very separate, disparate narratives uh, for the ease of an audience that wasn't really interested in doing the work required to understand where all this came from, Right? like, I read dozens of books to understand uh, the basics of how all this stuff came into play. I still, like, I am not a PhD, but there are people who are, and the idea that you could boil something so complicated and something so rich down to, like, here's an hour-long workshop, now you know what black music is, has just always been ridiculous to me. Beyond that, I think it's just, uh, I don't know, feeling of, like, is this your thing to tour, <laughs> whether or not I should be the tour guide, uh, why do you want to know so desperately? And some people are just curious, and other people do feel like it's important to understanding other kinds of music that they're making, and I get that. But also, I do feel a lot of the fetishism that Allison was talking about, where people are really interested in finding out what we do so that what they do seems more connected to us and like more exotic, and they don't have to feel bad about participating in this very, very white tradition in a very, very white space, and there not being any black people around, because there used to be black people around, and that's supposed to be enough. Um, It's a lot of layers of, uh, of problematic attitudes for that one.
1: Yeah, it's sort of like a birth worker and advocate that I follow, Shishi Rose, was just stirring up some trouble, some good trouble on Instagram, taking photos of the Black Lives Matter flags in neighborhoods where black people used to live. And that to me feels like roots music. Like it's all the signifiers of blackness without any of the human beings uh, that could actually benefit, right? Like I want Lizzie Jr. to benefit from this legacy of folk music, but really it's it's a lot of white kids benefiting from this legacy.
2: (laughs) Well, and that's hopefully what starts to change for real. You know, this time. And again, I I keep going back to this, but that goes, if I had a, we had a a panel during the Americana Fest conference, um, and I was there with Andrea Williams and Caroline Randall Williams and Kashana Armstrong and Adia Victoria. And Andrea, that's no joke of a panel. No, that is it was. No they joke. Were, It was really. They, and you know, all each of those women. You know, if those of you listening, in podcast world, are not familiar with their work, go, go do some deep dives into their work. Um, and Andrea, as a writer, journalist, primarily, just saw, was able to state so clearly and see so clearly that it's it's the changing of the guard at the gatekeeping stations that is so crucially important right now. And that's what, and and I hear Jake, what you're saying about the editors were embarrassed and it was a mistake and it was a, a fine, but the editors are still all cisgender white men, heterosexual men of a certain age, you know? And so it's like that has to change. Their hiring practices have to change who gets a salary has to change you know you can't expect to have different outcomes if you're doing the same thing and the same people are in the curatorial positions you know which essentially is what it is all those gatekeeping positions it's curating culture you know and that's a very 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 influential powerful role and you know and maybe i think about this a lot you know maybe there need to be terms maybe someone is the curator for a five-year period And then there is, and the next person Mm -hmm. comes, or there can be the overarching executive producer and they rotate those curatorial roles. I mean, I've been thinking about all of this a lot. You get these folks who have been in that position of curating culture and power for 20 plus years, and there is an inherent issue with that, I think. You know, even if it's a curator I adore, and I think that they're wonderful and they're open-minded and they're doing everything well, that's still you know, $300,000 a year for a person who's used to getting that kind of money from a demographic that's always had all the money and all the power and the influence. Yes. Like, it has to shift at a certain point, you know? And that is the other part of the the absurdity of the, the kind of fetish fetishized, tokenized approach is it just impoverishes everybody, you know, because it... It's not charity to let us in. It enriches everything. We elevate everything, you know. And you need more than one of us because we're all entirely different, and we're all going to bring something entirely different to the table. You know, Kai and I have laughed about we've, we we're both born and raised in Montreal, um, and we both have our both of our dads come from Grenada, and we both play banjo, <laughs> and we're both working, you know, in in kind of rootsy worlds, and the number of times that I have been called Kaya or she has been called Allison at these various, you know, folk clients or by well-meaning people. I am not saying these people didn't mean well, but they couldn't tell us apart. And look at us, We're, we, you know, We're not to praying. mention I'm, what, 20, however many years older than you are, Kaya. I'm sorry, anyway. You know, I've, the resemblance I've, been, is I've been here for a while. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but,
1: yeah. That's really interesting. And I it kind of brings me to something that I feel really deeply like one of the injustices, especially in the music industry, is that we have this narrative about the starving artist and the suffering artist and how that creates great art. People also have that narrative about Black people, that all of the suffering that we've been through creates these beautiful cultural expressions. You know, double that for women, right? Double that for Black women. So I think a lot of people, even well-meaning people, people who would say they're our allies and our champions, they believe, well you know, Allison had to go through X, Y, and Z, and that made her art that much greater. Um, And I do think that people do believe that about us as a group, whether they believe that consciously or not. I actually think that ease creates creativity. And And think of how many artists have been able to create something cool and quirky and interesting and touching, based on having time to daydream, based on having access to a studio, based on having a big budget to make something completely out of the box. And that's just a a freedom that's never been afforded to black artists. It's always been reserved for the white male artist that like we went into the studio and got high for six months and uh, we didn't have to worry about the, you know, the reception. Like, I want to see what we start to make in Roots Music with that kind of freedom. Like, what would we make if we weren't on a tightrope? Like we I feel like culturally audiences would love to enjoy the work of like an Allison who doesn't have so much to prove you know not that you're not making the art that you want to make right now but like what if there were hundreds more of us because the because this because the hurdles weren't so high mm-hmm.
2: absolutely
1: like that's my dream that like wacky and easy and different uh art were able to be created because like it just wasn't so hard to get in
0: <laughs> and like we did used to kind of have that i mean you think back to like like motown days and like stevie wonder i think specifically of how he was just like I'm going to rent out this studio for like three whole years and just make all of my hits right now. Like, yes, it has happened before and it has produced music that we all love. And I agree with you that that narrative is super problematic. And I think it goes back to this tendency that a lot of white America has to be like, yes, all the things we did to you were terrible but they kind of made you better, didn't they? You know, that's like, you run into that. Exactly. It's like an
1: abusive parent. It's that consent thing. Like, yes, I abused you, but it made you better. Exactly. And you didn't deserve to say no.
0: Exactly. And like the the whole thing for me about, you know, you run into this like various degrees of like vitriol of like racist white people who will be like, yeah, slavery was bad, but you're better off than Africans are, aren't you? Like that kind of mentality of like, this was horrible, but I created you. And I think what, what lacks there and what I usually find lacking when I'm talking to people about, like, the history of the music and of the culture is that it's not that the culture became beautiful because of the straits that it existed in. It was already beautiful and persisted in that. Yes. And. Yes the i I just the idea that everything that black people specifically in the Americas have made is something that was handed to us that either like came down from the ancestors or came in from European influences just is i I just think there's such an endemic idea that we have never made anything original on our own that all we have is this collection of artifacts from other people that have been handed to us, and therefore we have to be grateful for it on some level. And I do think you're right that that's just playing out on a personal level when it comes down to the individual artists who are not receiving those opportunities, who have to work within limitations, and who have to be super creative uh, in order to make those things work, and who have to make sure that their art appeals to a certain demographic in a certain way to keep the thing financially solvent.
1: Yeah, we just don't have those chances to fail that other artists have. And that's really real. It It can affect everything. You know, where you tour, what kind of music you're making, what kind of collaborations you're willing to take a risk on. Like, so much of art is about being able to feel safe in taking a risk. And I just, want, like, oh, I have that dream that we will have that same freedom that other artists have.
2: That dream will be realized. You know, it will. It's just a matter of time and consistent. You know, we are, in a sense, you're right, where we are, we are kind of in this... um shock troop kind of position yeah. of, you know, and it's like those that hopefully that the point of it is to make it more exactly more equitable, easier access for a generation, for the generations to come. And I think about, you know, I'm the eldest of us here in this panel. I'm a mom. And so I have shifted kind of how I think about everything since becoming a mom. And I was so you know, I fell silent for three years because I was overwhelmed by the enormity of the responsibility of all of it, and the fact that I was essentially stepping into the stream of ancestors. You know, and it doesn't matter whether you are, you know, physically a parent or not. Like we are all, we are all stewards of this earth, of this time for gen- for the generations to come. You know, we are whether we recognize it or not. What we do is affecting future generations, and because I could no longer not see that and not feel it 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 just it hit me really hard and I also have this feeling now every day of like it's not this is not about me this is not even the way I feel about it now is it's not even my time it's my kid's time and her kid's time I have to do everything I can now to make it better for them to reduce harm to to stop these cycles of intergenerational violence trauma bigotry absurd stereotype, all the layers of it that we, that I've inherited, that we've, that we all navigate through. Um, because you're right, Lizzie, so much of certainly my art, I make no bones about it. My art is a thousand percent processing trauma, always has been. It's how I survived. I'd be dead. I'd be dead now, you know? So I'm here because of being able to find some kind of lifeline and solace through art, processing trauma through art. And I, I don't know what I believe in, I'm a hopeful agnostic, but I pray with every fiber of my being that my child never has to make art for that reason. Right now, these joyful, these are her first pastels, my daughter Ida, who's seven now. Beautiful. And I keep them behind me all the time just because they give me hope and they keep me focused on what I actually believe is important, which is to reduce harm and have a sustainable planet for our for future generations of all the living species to enjoy um, because we're taking so many down with us if we go you know Um, and I just I'm every time she writes a song every time she paints something I feel this sense of joy that so far knock on wood I appear to be succeeding in that her art is an expression of her pure spirit and herself and it's has nothing to do with any kind of heavy trauma she's needing to process right now, you know? Hallelujah. It's squirm, worm, worm, eat the dirt. No worm left behind. <laughs> squirm, worm, eat the dirt. No worm left behind. She wrote that song for our worm compost, you know? like That's hit. It okay. brings me Precious. so much joy. So it's a bop. It's like, and It is a bop, but Like She wrote that when she was six, so, you know, I can't even imagine what she's going to be writing when she's 15 and... Okay. Forty-five and eighty, I hope you know, but it's like we are, you know, we we do. Build, and Jake, I hear what you're saying. This notion of that we have to prove our worth, and that we, or that nothing that we do is is ours, is so bizarre and ridiculous. But it's based on years of erasure, purposeful erasure, because the w- entire wealth of the world was robbed from the African continent. That's you know every. Going back to feudalism, like we haven't, we're still caught in imperialist, really destructive models of how to navigate the world. And it's there has been so much erasure and you know, all of the unbelievably rich, diverse kingdoms, empires, dynasties, you know, on the African continent, languages, 124 languages and distinct ethnic groups in Cameroon alone, you know, and we have Sitting presidents who call Africa a country—it's embarrassing, you know. Yeah. Um, but it again, has it's been like the no taste. There's of no erasure. taste. There's no <laughs> years no of erasure. It's sophistication. Yeah. It's deep, 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 deep ignorance. And and I hear you, Kaya, too. Of like, you get exhausted. And you don't want to have to be a teacher all the time, and, and you shouldn't have to be. You know, I'm kind of on the opposite end of that spectrum. Where I'm like, I will be a teacher every fucking minute of the day if it means that my kid doesn't have to go through all the same shit I did. You know, like I'm, but again, individual choice, individual, what we need is different. We're different. We're all different, obviously. <laughs> all like, this shouldn't be even a question, you know, and the notion of the insidiousness to me of this false ideology of scarcity and competition, that there is this, there's only a certain number of people that will ever want to hear Black, a black person sing or speak. There's only a certain number of people who ever want to hear a woman or a black woman or a gay man or whatever. Like, it's nonsense. Utter nonsense, you know? And there, But there's endless opportunities for any, any amount of sort of white mediocrity, you know, like that's, there's, it's fine. There's room for all there's of that. New, there's, there's a new Tyler There needs to be Tyler black mediocrity day. too. Yeah. Yeah. We <laughs> yeah. need black mediocrity. We need indigenous mediocrity. We need to celebrate, we need to get to where we're celebrating mediocrity yeah. Yeah. and then we'll know that the playing field is evening out, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, it just, there is, it just, The other part is we don't Adia is so strong with this. She's like, You're not a position you're not a person of authority. I don't give a shit what you think. I don't care what you say. No. You have no authority to say anything about any of this. And that is what I love about Adia. She's just like, Nope. (laughs) I have no time for that foolery right now.
1: No, even like where when I was thinking about like doing you know whether or not to have this conversation on basic folk like i thought about Adia, and i i look i was looking at her, her she had this great tweet of like i'm not gonna address this situation like i'm better off you know baking biscuits than addressing this article in any way and i was like hell yeah
2: Adia! like that's just not your work right now and you get to decide you know? Exactly. You get to decide. And Jake chose to address it. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. I was happy to yeah. share yes. Jake's gorgeously written, well reasoned, well researched piece. Um, and you know, I was happy to share that. And I was happy to share about Jake's record because it's a beautiful yes. record. And I'm happy to share anything Kaya ever does mm-hmm. or you ever do because I resonate with your art and I it, it feeds my spirit and I want more people to hear it. You know, it's like, it's as simple That's as that. That's what it's about. It's what I, it's about. And I and no, does every single, are we gonna love every single black person's artistic expression? Why would we? Any no. more than we would love every single, anybody's expression. No, you know, you we all practice our internal compass. You know, we all follow our internal compasses and we amplify and uplift the things that speak to us and move us. And I personally choose to ignore and say nothing about the things that don't move me because I don't feel any need to spew forth negativity into the world myself, you know. Wow. It's almost
1: as though you move through the world with respect and good taste (laughs) um, and a reasonable sense of like what you need to speak on and what you don't need to speak on. And it's almost as though some people weren't raised with that kind of uh, internal compass that's just something that i find funny yeah. and interesting. <laughs> um i want to move towards the less shady. uh <laughs> let's let's talk about that that future generation. so like imagine there is a black artist listening to this conversation right now and they, you know, what would what advice would you give them? what is some wisdom, what is some strength that you could give to somebody who's maybe just getting started? can we start with you, Jake?
0: sure. Um, I suppose my, my immediate advice, I mean, it would depend on how old they were or like, you know, where in their career they were. So it's hard to speak generally. But I think the thing that was most important for me is that I made connections with older musicians who were already doing this er very early on. I mean, my first, like, you know, fiddle camp music learning experience was with Rhiannon Giddens and Hubby Jenkins. So... I had the opportunity to get to know them and talk to them about it a little bit and like, you know, get to know things like, oh, you probably shouldn't go to Galax and like these other things that were kind of known in the community that I didn't know and I wouldn't have been aware of. You know, additionally, I just think that there's a tendency to look out for one another. I mean, Rhiannon in particular is so generous with sharing her platform with other artists that she believes in and who she believes should be heard. And I, you know, I was one of those. She brought me on some, some shows. I think Kaya did too. So, um, and obviously Allison's Allison's like in a band with her. Um, she's like
2: one of my favorite bands. It's such a fucking good band. Seriously.
0: Seriously. Um,
2: (laughs) can I say something, you know, who else was going to be in that band, but it didn't work with her schedule. Kaya.
0: <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. she was.
2: We were. We asked Kaya and we asked Valerie June as well, and it, it didn't work oh for gosh. either of their schedules. But there is a there is a like extended cut. Yeah. There's yeah. gonna be there's gonna be more. We're gonna be doing more down the line, and we're gonna have some special guests. I am really the OND extended universe. <laughs> extended right. universe. Yeah.
0: I am prepared for additional installations.
1: There are like white dudes who are like very threatened by our native daughters, and like they don't realize that you're only just getting started. Like you have not yet begun. That's right. The, cur- the scary work you're about to do. There are white
2: dudes <laughs> who are threatened by the picture alone. Poor black women yep. with banjos. There were. I mean, you go to you go to like ge- what I call general population. Like when Smithsonian aired um, the documentary, it was it was on the Smithsonian Channel, and it's just, it just goes to their YouTube, and that's very. General population and the amount of outrage just based on the picture. People that hadn't watched the documentary, cultural appropriation—they're not—they're you know losing their minds because those folks still think the banjo isn't African. So what are you going to do? What are you, gonna do? It's like, you just keep. Oh, making we music. we pray for them. We, we pray, pray for them. them. Bless their hearts. We pray for them. We keep making <laughs> music and we ignore that noise and keep doing what we do.
0: And I will say, the following summer after your record came out, I was at a camp where there were four black women taking banjo classes. And, like, the first thing they did was go reenact your photo. They were like, we need to go take an Our Native Daughters photo. <laughs> it
2: makes me want to cry with joy and happiness.
1: That. Like,
2: oh, my, our my work gosh, it's is... the new Abbey Road. It's working. It's working. Yeah. But you know what, you guys? Here's what I'm going to say. I just felt a real difference at Americana Fest this year. The yes. number of Black folks that came to my shows or panels and like mm-hmm. lovins that I had with different Black artists I had never met before. It was just like Chris Matthews I had never met before, Joy Clark oh, I had Chris. never met before. All these, just B- Roberta Lee, just these wonderful mm-hmm. artists that are showing up and, and having such an impact and changing the change, shifting the paradigm, shifting the landscape, changing what you know, how it's even perceived. And so and then that chain, that goes out into social media world. And then there's some other little sweet, nerdy black kids sitting at home going, oh, I can go there. I can go there and bring my dulcimer and no one's going to make fun of me. I'm going to go and do my thing that I love, you know. And it, it just gives me, it's I feel like we're in an exciting time of growth. And that it's just, I feel, the reason I'm so excited about coalition and finding those allies that can actually help shift the power is, you know, it's, that is what I'm just excited about that. Like we need to be in the boardrooms. We need to be on the editorial staff. We need to be everywhere that decisions are being made and it's not going to take anything away from anyone. It's going to enrich the whole scene in, in just immeasurably and exponentially, you know? And so that's what's, I think that is what is starting to happen. And it's, really thrilling to me
0: I also just want to say that I feel like one of the things we've talked about here is like the power that these gatekeeper folks have whether it be the journalists or the editors or the you know the people on the label panels who are making decisions about who they who they make contracts with and I feel like because we're talking about music and we're talking about something that revolves around individuals it's a little bit easy to forget that like the main way people have undercut black power movements in this country uh, is by character assassination of the leaders. And that the journalists and the publishers and the editors in particular are in a really well-positioned place to do that. And what I reacted very strongly against in the article that shall not be named was not the invention of a new genre or whatever else. It was specifically him going after you and Amethyst, who I know for me are like, I mean, I've been in Amethyst-Kia stand since, like, 2013. Like, I have been on this train. I love both of your work so much. And I was like, this cannot stand. And I feel like that's just a thing I feel like we need to be aware of because so much of the music industry, I think, doesn't realize that, one, the people that they're writing about, talking about, even if they're not journalists, if they're just fans who are talking to other people, like, they're talking about real humans, not fictional characters. Like be kind, but for another thing, is that you have the potential to actually do damage to something a lot larger, and in that particular instance, I think the damage was intentional, but I don't think that it often is, and I think that's another thing people need to be aware of, even if you're just a fan, and you're in, like, the fan community, or if you're in some weird subset, like old-time music like I play, and there's just a lot of people who are really deep in it, and random people have a lot of power for no reason, um you can still be a gatekeeper and you can still be part of the process of cutting down the leaders to make sure that the hole cannot rise
1: that is such a good point yeah we need to be really really real about what is happening when powerful white men talk about black women a certain type of way right like it's not just about the music. It's not just about, oh, this is a, this is a person that's popular, so I'm going to cut down the popular thing. No, you're talking about a symbol of Black power, and you're talking about a human person. Um, it's about so much more than, like, I liked this album. I didn't like this album.
2: No, I mean, that, that and I'm not going to go deeply into anything, but it was very clear that there was a kind of almost like a personal vitriol. And the fact that he chose to specifically attack our sisterhood and try and pit us against one another by, you know, elevating Rihanna and trying to kind of put Amethyst and I down in ignorant way um, was laughable. You know, it was laughable if he thought that that was going to, break our sisterhood, he's going to have to try a lot harder, we had a lot, you know, that's all I'll say about that, Um, but yeah, it was very, very ignorant, and I, Jake, that makes me, that's very sweet that that was what, um, you know, anyway, it's just, I agree, Amethyst is brilliant, 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 and yeah, that song, I Can't Get Through Wild Turkey Without Crying, because of course, oh my you know, God. that song is about her mother, and her mother committed suicide when Amethyst was 17 years old, and she has been navigating the fallout of that and will navigate the fallout of that the rest of her life, and that she found the courage to write about it so beautifully and iconically is just... I'm so proud of her, and I was so proud that she said yes when I invited her to come and perform at Newport and that she chose to play that song because I know that that is one of the most difficult songs for her to have to play. And I just, yeah. Everyone, go get Amethyst Kia's Weary and Strange right it's now. <laughs> it's phenomenal. It's really, really, good. Yes. So, Amethyst
1: is the first person I interviewed for this podcast. like, um, And we talked about Weary and Strange, and she was like so generous with her time and like all the kooky stuff that she was willing to talk about. Like, I was like, Oh, okay. There's this whole world that's opening up right now. And like, things are changing right now. Well, I want to thank, i want to thank all of you so much for being here. Um, I know that a lot of us get asked to do the panel, the, the podcast, the conversation, and it doesn't always feel like we get space to say what we want to say and what feels necessary. Um, so for each of you, do you have like one last thing that you wish people knew, which that you wish people were talking about um, before we go?
3: Uh, well, I mean, I guess I just wanted to add to what I would tell, you know, a young person. I'm thinking Great. of like myself at 22. Um, she made some questionable decisions. She did, but I love her. <laughs> um <laughs> yeah i think like what allison said about boundaries that is such a big deal um and boundary work is like it's all over social media and stuff but i actually think it's really deep work and and it involves thinking about what your values are what drains energy from you what gives you energy you know um and when i was young I, i went through like a very similar process of you know, Rian, and they gave me banjo lessons, and if I hadn't seen the chocolate drops, I wouldn't be playing banjo today, so representation is a big deal, but I think also community is a very big deal, and being able to, to say, like, you know, this, this booker asked me to do this thing, I feel uncomfortable about it, I don't know what to do, or, Mm -hmm. you know, um, this thing happened to me or, or also like, Hey, will you be at this festival? I would love to see you, you know, things like that. Like that's, what's really kept me going, you know? And I think at 22, not understanding that I, that I could probably say like, I don't feel comfortable with this or I don't want to do this because I think I was like, oh, I have to accept everything that comes my way Mm -hmm. because I'm in a scarcity mindset. And because like I'm like, I'm just lucky to be in the room, this sort of thing. Like, I can't believe I'm here, you know, and I think getting out of that mindset and saying, no, they're lucky to have you in the room if you don't feel comfortable. Like, I'll just say this, like if, if any artist doesn't feel comfortable, like talking to an editor or talking somebody about like something that happened like i will be there like you can call me you can email me i will be Mm -hmm. there to like be on your team if you just need some support um Mm -hmm. so yeah like community support is a huge thing yeah
1: yeah i think it's so important for people to realize like even if there isn't another person in your town you know from your high school or whatever like doing this that you feel like looks like you like there is community like I've been so surprised how many people how many like-minded people there are that that have my back you know like if you if you feel like this isn't the right opportunity this is tokenizing something doesn't feel right about this like I think It takes some courage and confidence and faith to know that there's another opportunity that will be right for you and that there are people out there who will support you in the times when you have to say no.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And to find, you know, I think for the longest time, I didn't understand how much social media can be used as a community network when we are geographically isolated or separated. And find your people as, and again, this is just amplifying and, and expanding on exactly what each of you has said, community is everything. It really is. Yes. Nothing that has happened for me in my career has come any other way. It has not come from gatekeepers suddenly recognizing me. Never. Not once. Everything has come from other artists that I have formed community with choosing to advocate and amplify what I'm doing. You know, every single thing from, as Jake points out, Rhiannon has been a huge... Uh, champion for so many of us, you know, she and I became friends kind of before her career took off, and when it did, mm-hmm. every single door she went through, she nudged open and invited her sisters in behind, and that's that's also to, to understand, recognize that wherever you are in your career, you have a sphere of influence, you have ways to 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 advocate for others too, and doing both of those things, because we're all both you know, mentors and mentees. We're all Mm. advocates and people who need advocacy. Like we're all those things at the same time. And there are so many ways that we can just continue to to push back against that kind of divide and conquer nonsense that keeps us depressed and isolated and disempowered. Mm -hmm. You know, we find each other, we uplift each other. If we, one thing that you am I'm, I'm going to bring up my amazing sister Yola because she is such yes. a badass. And she is someone who says, you know what? Walk through the world with that white boy entitlement. Like that's what's going to yes. heal it is us walking through the world with that same amount of entitlement. And speaking to what Kaya is saying, have your boundaries, but also know when you can push someone else to be better and do better. Like for example, Yola will say no to a festival unless there are at least three other women of color or you know, be a POC folks on that bill, you know, and and she is getting to a point where she has clout enough to they'll oh okay they'll go out and they'll actually hire some other people. Brandy Carlile does the same thing, you know. Even in terms of like Yola people, she brought out on the road. She all she brought Amethyst out, and that was when yes. you know her her greater label was thinking you know various it white boys to open, you know, and she was like no. It's amethyst or it's nobody, you know, and that was before all the stuff that has started to happen for amethyst in the last year you know so it's like we 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 lift each other up and and having those boundaries gives us longevity in this business because you can only you know you can only be imposed upon so far before it really takes like a physical and emotional and psychological toll so And finding that community, finding your people, lifting each other up, that's what is gonna sustain all of us through the various hard times.
1: Thank you all so, so, so much. This is not the end of this conversation. I have a feeling like this is gonna continue on, but I'm just so grateful that all of you were willing to engage on this topic and share so much of yourselves with our listeners here. Thank you so much to Jake Blount, Allison Russell, and Kaya Cater. I'm Lizzie Noh. Thanks so much for listening to Basic Folk. Arise, arise, to fight
3: these dogs biting.
1: Thanks for listening to this special episode of Basic Folk. Find out information on Jake, Kaya, and Allison, and all the artists mentioned in the show notes and at basicfolk.com. The best way to support everyone is to buy their music and to go to their shows when they are in your town. Thanks to Kaya Cater for letting us use her song, Rising Down. Support the podcast at basicfolk.com. You can also hear more episodes there or wherever you get podcasts. We encourage you to keep learning about marginalized people in folk music. To get you started, some resources are the Black Opry, the Country Queer blog, and the Country Soul Songbook. I'm Lizzie No, no as in no thank you. Thanks for listening. Bye.